You guys that are in the outer court are welcome to come in. <laughs> I have to remind them the veil has been rent there, so yeah, more than welcome. This is not the uh, old covenant, the new covenant. So. I was thinking tonight of a uh, statement my father used to make, and that is if you want to know how popular the church is, you go on Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular the preacher is, you go on Wednesday night. If you want to know how popular the Lord is, you go to the prayer meeting. So uh, that's a good, a good way of assessing a church. Isn't that right? You'll bear with me tonight. I've been uh, had a sort of a tsunami of a head cold that I'm just on the tail end of, so that's why I'm using this microphone, just in case I uh, cough. I don't want to blow the speakers. I don't want to be responsible for replacing them. So anyway, I'll use this. But uh, how many were here two weeks ago when I spoke on prayer, and oh, I sh maybe I should say how many were not here. Okay. Let me, let me just take you back to a, a verse of Scripture that I believe is a real prophetic verse, and it has been uh, meaningful to me for many, many years. 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, those of you who uh, were here will recall this. It's a fascinating uh, portion of Scripture, the only time it's ever found in the Word of God, but it concerns the nation of Israel, the Philistines. I'll try and make it brief. But the Philistines, as you know, were constantly at war with the children of Israel, and they came up with this plan to uh, basically take the power out of the nation of Israel. They went through and they eliminated every single blacksmith shop in the entire nation. And the Bible says, and I'll just pick it up, so uh, verse 20, all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his hole. So in other words, Israel was totally dependent on the Philistines. Every time they broke one of their agricultural implements, they had to traipse over to the Philistines to get it repaired. And the Philistines levied a tax on that, so they had to pay two-thirds of a shekel. But that was not what was so sinister about this plan. If we go back to verse 19, it says, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. They were not uh, interested in just undermining the agricultural effectiveness of the nation of Israel. They wanted to eliminate the weapons of war. And the blacksmith not only made the forks and axes and hoes and, uh, you know, the chainsaws of the day or whatever, but uh, he made the weapons of war. And they understood if we can eliminate every single blacksmith shop in the nation of Israel, when the day of battle comes, they will be powerless. And so notice what happened, verse 22. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. That's hard for me to believe. I still stagger at that verse that in the entire nation, according to that verse, only the king and his son had the ability to fight. David got into problems with God when he numbered Israel and he came up with 1,500,000 or whatever men that could draw the sword. And yet here in the previous administration, at least at this particular period of time, the Philistines have been so successful that not one single individual apart from the king and his son had the ability to draw a weapon of war. But that was the sinister plan. Again, you may say, well, what does that have to do with prayer? I believe years ago, you know, centuries ago, the greater Philistine, the devil, came up with a plan. If I can go through the spiritual Israel of God and eliminate the blacksmith shop, in other words, the prayer meeting, on the day of battle, God's people will be powerless. And I think uh, if I have to give kudos or credit to the enemy, he did a good job. Because you can go to any church now, and when you call a prayer meeting, you know, there's plenty of room left in the janitor's closet to get them all in, you know. I mean, it's a fact, isn't it? And uh, the enemy not only has been successful corporately but individually from taking, again, the weapons of our warfare out of our hands. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are what? Mighty through God. Not, not just adequate, but more than adequate. So the pulling down of strongholds, and we are facing strongholds uh, on every hand. Anyway, just want to bring that back because I believe that's a, there's something very prophetic about that. Even though it's way, way back there in time, I believe that the, uh, the potency, if you like, of that uh, uh, portion of Scripture is still echoing today. The enemy is still using that weapon of uh, just uh, eliminating the blacksmith shop. 
All right, we, we talked about um, exhortations to prayer. We talked about hindrances to prayer. If you were here, we talked about three essential beliefs, if you like, about uh, prayer, God's presence, God's passion, God's power. We talked about access to prayer, John 14, that uh, I don't believe was just uh, Jesus up there, you know, with a carpenter's belt getting ready for the uh, rapture or whatever. In fact, uh, you know, every time I read my Bible, it says that Jesus is coming. But uh, every time I hear somebody preach, it's about us going. And I can't figure out how that happens, you know. He's coming, he's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming. And yet, uh, you know, in everybody's mind, we're going. And uh, so something's wrong, but uh, that's the revised standard anyway. Um, all right. So uh, tonight, uh, I want to, if you turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 6, I want to very quickly look at the uh, Lord's Prayer here. Some of you have got little uh, pieces of paper there with an outline, so I, uh, I'm doing that because I get questions afterwards about, could you give me the second point or the third point or whatever. G. Campbell Morgan, in one of his books, and I can't remember which one, I tried to Google it and found somebody else that said the same thing, so in the mouth of two or three witnesses, but they said that the rabbis uh, call this prayer an index prayer. In other words, when Jesus gave this prayer, he never intended people to memorize it and to quote it. In other words, when you have your devotions and you want to learn to pray, it wasn't our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And as soon as you get through, you can jump into bed or out of bed and you say, you know, I've had my devotions for the day. That was not God's intention. It uh, is really an index prayer. And uh, those of you who can go back to high school days when you had to give a speech about your summer vacation and you would take a little four-by-six card and you would write down prompts. You know, goldfish died, grandmother died, dog died, or whatever it was. It was a bad summer. And, uh, and then you stand up and you look, goldfish died. Oh, yeah, let me tell you about this, you know, goldfish I had for the last 10 years. He finally croaked and uh, so on. And, uh, you know, and so it's a little prompt. That's, in other words, that's what this prayer is all about. Each of these points was to launch you into a realm of understanding. And so uh, I've broken it down. You're welcome to use this as many, many uh, ways of doing this that I've seen in the years, over the years. Um, but uh, this is my rendition, if you like. The first thing, his person. It's pointless to pray to somebody that their will would be done until you understand what sort of a person you're praying to. In other words, if I'm praying to Idi Amin, he's dead now, but, uh, you know, thy will be done, that's a terrible prayer. He's the guy that ate his uh, enemies, you know, literally ate them, you know, went into cannibalism and so on, or, you know, Stalin or somebody else, thy will be done. That's a terrible thing. You don't want to pray somebody's will being done unless you know what sort of a person that is. And so we're introduced to God as a father. One of the great revelations, really, of the New Testament isn't that right? He's mentioned as a father a couple times in the Old Testament, but not, not uh, that many times. I have a number of messianic friends. I may have mentioned this uh, uh, last time. And uh, one of my pet peeves with some of my messianic friends is that when they write a newsletter and they mention God's name, they put J-D. You know, they won't mention the Word of God. And yet uh, my Bible says he's a father. Can you imagine Jeremiah telling the kids, you know, don't call me Jeremiah, don't call me dad, just call me D-D, -D, you know. I mean, what, what an insult to God to, uh, you know, to have that so-called high and holy, lofty view of God. He's a father, and uh, we approach him as a father. Fathers should be approachable. In the natural, a father is somebody that you uh, can go to, you rush up to, no sort of protocol necessary in one sense, and I don't want to be disrespectful of God, but in, a, in another sense, you know, we, we feel close to somebody who is a father. Not only that, a father is responsible for us. You know, I never ever worried as a child about whether I had clothes to wear to go to school the next day or whether there was going to be food on the table. That never ever entered my mind one single day. I never went to bed worrying. That was my, fa my father and my mother's responsibility. And God is a father. He takes care of his own. And uh, you can just, uh, again, you know, we could spend all night just talking about uh, God as a father. All you've got to do is take your concordance, look up the word father. He's a father with no variableness, no shadow of turning. We don't have to wait till God's in a good mood. Maybe some of you had a father that was an alcoholic or something, and he'd come home drunk, and, you know, that's, you, you don't go near dad when he's drunk, I think. When he sobers up, then you can approach him. Thank God that God is not moody. In that sense, no variableness, no shadow of turning. He's the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. He's a forgiving Father, the Bible says. He's a compassionate Father. He's a merciful Father. All those things and all the more that endears us to Him. And so, we've got to know what sort of a person He is. He is a Father, and as a Father, He is responsible uh, for our well-being and uh, will provide for us. The second thing is uh, His progeny. I put this in recently uh, just to add to the list a little bit, but uh, no. Uh, notice he is not my father. He's our father. Now, when I pray, and I'm sure when you pray, we think of him as my father, and there's nothing wrong with that other than we are part of a family. Isn't that right? And therefore, we have to bear one another's burdens. When I was uh, working with Mike Bickle in uh, Kansas City years ago, uh, we uh, supported a man in the inner city by the name of David Alshaw. He worked with prostitutes and street people uh, and so on. And uh, he gave an illustration of uh, one night having a dream. And in the dream, he saw two homeless people sitting on a grating. And they were praying and asking God for uh, food or bread, I think. And uh, here it was, the middle of winter, both of them sort of starving and shivering and uh, trying to keep warm sitting on these, you know, uh, gratings outside this uh, industrial building. And he said, all of a sudden, two loaves of bread came tumbling down out of heaven and landed in one man's lap. And David, in his dream, he looked at, the, uh, uh, looked at the man with two loaves of bread, and then he looked at the other man. He heard both of them praying the identical prayer. And he said to the Lord, Lord, why did you only answer one man's prayer and you didn't answer the other man's prayer? And he said, the Lord spoke to him very clearly, and he said, I answered both prayers. Some of you are looking at me. I know it's not that late, but... Uh, in other words, he gave sufficient to the other person to meet his brother's need. Now, we don't think that way. We think in terms of uh, my father and uh, you can take care of your own needs sort of thing. You know, we go to a typical home group and uh, the leader at the end says, by the way, before we leave, anybody got any prayer requests? And Susie puts up her hand and she says, yeah, my uh, rent is due this week. In fact, it's due in the morning and I've been a little panicky, but I've, at the same time, I've had a piece that God's going to supply I need $500, no idea where it's going to come from, uh, and so on. So the leader says, well, let's uh, gather around Susie and pray, believe God. And Mary puts up her hand and said, well, could I just uh, give a word of encouragement before we pray? And uh, so the leader says, go ahead, Mary. And Mary says, uh, Susie, I want you to know I've been in a very similar situation myself this week. My rent was due. It's also $500. And I went to the mailbox on Tuesday, and uh, there was a, a letter without anybody's name on it, opened it up, and there was a check for $1,000. So I want you to know that God can answer your prayer, Susie. Now, that's typically the way we work, isn't it? You know, uh, the fact is he gave uh, Susie sufficient to take care of Mary's need. But we tend to think my father, not our father. And I think uh, there's a reason why Jesus introduced it that way. Our father, we are responsible, bear one another's burdens all the way through the Word of God. And uh, I can be just as selfish as anybody else when it comes to those things, but we need to you know, broaden our horizons a little bit. We are members one of another. Nancy and I were missionaries in New Guinea in the early 70s, and New Guinea has a, uh, uh, has a, a saying there in pidgin English, one talk, and it means the same talk, one talk, same language. New Guinea has uh, about 4 million people and 700 languages, not dialects, distinct languages in New Guinea. And uh, you can have, you know, a little group of people here and a mountain, huge mountain ranges and uh, another group over here, they don't even know each other and speak an entirely different language. So Wycliffe have their largest base in the world there. But um, the problem with the, uh, the one talk is it means that you come from the same village, you have the same language, and uh, you are to take care of one another, even though you are not naturally or not uh, relational, or you're not related uh, by flesh and blood, you're related by the fact you come from the same, uh, same area. And the problem was we had people in our church, I think one lady, beautiful little uh, uh, couple, they had about three or four little children, lived in a, uh, maybe a 400 square foot house, and uh, some kids came from uh, one of these, uh, from their particular one talk village, and the, um, the culture is that if you can find a one-talk, you can just go in and that becomes your home. You know, they have a responsibility to look after you because you're a one-talk. 
And so here was this uh, beautiful little family, but they had three, I think it was three university students in this 400-square-foot house without any division in the walls other than curtains. So you can imagine the problem, but I'm a one-talk. You have a responsibility to take care of me. We are one-talks spiritually. We have a responsibility to take care of one another. All right, the next thing is his position. We won't go through all of these. Which art in heaven? Our Father, which art in heaven? Now, many, many times, uh, and I've, uh, of course, m- m- the library now is uh, next door there, but there are books in there that are just uh, books written about the Lord's Prayer. If I remember correctly, there's possibly two or three of them, I think, uh, where the, the whole book is just the, uh, the Lord's Prayer expounded. And invariably, they take that, that one phrase, Our Father, which art in heaven, and all they talk about is God as a Father, and they leave, which art in heaven. When I was a child and we prayed, Our Father, which art in heaven, to me, heaven was way up somewhere in the wild blue yonder, some black hole where God, uh, you know, was hanging out. And at the uh, speed of light, my prayers, if they ever reached there, you know, by the time God answered them, they'd be the next generation. In other words, heaven was measured by distance. And yet, uh, if you want to know what Jesus was talking about, uh, on my Bible, it's the same page, verse 34, the previous verse, it says, Swear not by heaven because it is the throne of God. Heaven to the Jew meant something. It was not just, uh, you know, a a place way up in the the wild blue yonder. Heaven was God's throne, our Father that sits on the throne. You can have the most wonderful Father in the world as far as compassion and mercy and all of those things, but if He has no power, then you're not really going to get the answers that you're looking for. I use the illustration of two kids playing in the street and uh, kicking a ball, maybe in some, uh, you know, big um, city like Chicago or New York or something, and there's a a tenement building that's been bulldozed and rubble lying everywhere for about, uh, you know, a square block, and these kids are getting into trouble kicking a ball because they're breaking windows and so on. One one of the kids says to the other kid, he said, you know, wouldn't it be great if they cleared off all that rubble off that empty lot, lot over there and turned it into a ballpark? where we could play. And the other kid said, man, that's an incredible idea. I've never thought of that before. I'll ask my dad about it. And the other little boy says, what do you mean, ask your dad about it? He said, "Uh, I've asked my dad about it, and he just laughs. He said, I can't do anything about it. The other little boy says to to his friend, he says, you don't know what my father does. You don't know what my father does, do you? And he said, no. He said, my father's a city planner. You see, one, one boy's dad sits on the throne. We have a God that sits on the throne. Our Father, which art in heaven, swear not by heaven, it's the throne of God. Heaven is your throne. The earth is your footstool. There's some scriptures there along that line on your notes. But it makes all the difference where your Father sits. You know, He may be kind, loving, compassionate, and, uh, and so on, but we need a Father that sits on the throne. And thank God when we pray, we have a God that is able to do exceeding abundant of all that we could ever ask or think because He's got the power, all power, all authority as being given unto me, not just a, a small portion. All right, the next thing is his uh, preeminence, hallowed be thy name. And, uh, you know, there's entire books, again, on the name of uh, God's names. Names, if you like, are like titles. The best way to describe a, 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 a name to me is... Uh, well, for instance, uh, if I were to introduce my, my friend, John, and I say, this is my best friend, John, we grew up together, and so on, it doesn't really tell you much about John other than I've already declared that he's my best friend. But the more titles I give him, the more of a wow factor my friend John becomes. I said, this is my friend, Dr. John. You think, wow, pretty smart guy. This is my friend, psychiatrist John. This is my friend, fireman John. This is my friend, uh, surgeon John. This is my friend, you know, mechanic John. This is my friend, uh, plumber John. You know, the more titles I give him, the more wow factor. Wow, David's friend is amazing. He's a lawyer. He's an architect. He's a builder. He's a, you know, he's a, all of these things. God is that way. One name is not sufficient to describe God. You know, he's our shepherd. He's our righteousness. He's our banner. You know, he's our healer. I mean, you know, just an endless list of things. Rotherham's translation when it says, I am, it leaves a dash behind it because he said, I am is an incomplete name for God. At least that's his uh, rendering. Meaning, I am, and you fill in the blank. I am, whatever you need, I am. 
That's who God is. We can never exhaust the, the magnitude of uh, God's nature and character. He's everything that He declares Himself to be and more so, so to speak. So, hallowed be Thy name. Again, we hallow His name by the people we associate with, the things that we do, and so on. We could get into all of that as well. Um, his power, Thy kingdom come. As you know, the, uh, the kingdom of God to uh, realms is the, uh, the God's kingdom in, in a realm and God's kingdom as far as a rule is concerned. But uh, we are to pray, thy kingdom come. Lord, we want your rule. Now, you can't pray these prayers. Uh, it, it has to be personal first before we begin to sort of apply it out there somewhere. In other words, I've got to pray, thy kingdom come in my life. Jesus, rule, you know, over all the kingdoms of my heart. That song that was popular years ago, Jesus, be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. We have our financial kingdom, our emotional kingdom, you know, all these little kingdoms, if you like, that we rule over, and we've got to come under the rule of God Himself. And in the pattern, as it is in heaven. You want to know what, uh, what it's going to be like? We have a pattern in heaven. Everything in heaven ultimately climaxes in God Himself. We sang a little bit tonight, Jesus be the center of it all. He is the center of everything and will continue to be, and so on. So, thy will be done. Be the center of my life. Even as you have supremacy in everything in heaven, have supremacy here on earth in, uh, in my life. And then uh, His provision, give us this day our daily bread. His pardon, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. His precept, that means a rule or, or uh, uh, to regulate behavior, put that in there, as we forgive our debtors. In other words, it's one thing to say, uh, forgive us our debts, but it's as we forgive. God establishes a teaching debt. Yep. Well, I think both, yeah. I would say both, you know. Man shall not live by bread alone. We need bread, you know, uh, but... Uh, we need the spiritual bread too. Yeah. I mean, Jesus said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven if you partake of me. So, I th you know, I would, I would say both. Because God, you know, God supplies our food, you know. All things He's given us to richly to enjoy. All right. Uh, His uh, protection lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then uh, finally, His praise. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, and then I just added one more, his perpetual, your, his perpetual, <laughs> I'm trying to say it now, I'm getting tongue-tied, perpetual, <laughs> somebody said, perpetuity, that's what I, I got it wrong, perpetuity, all right, forever, all right, so there, there you have a little bit of an outline of, uh, of the prayer, that uh, each of these, again, is to be a thought that sort of launches us into a realm of understanding about God. Well, we're not just limiting. You know, we get so used to saying the Lord's Prayer, we could all stand right now and say it blindfolded, you know, and so on. We know it so well, but uh, it's another thing to see it outworked in, in our life. All right, so that, uh, that's uh, phase one that uh, I wanted to uh, uh, deal with. The, the second area now, I want to get into spiritual warfare. I'm not sure how far we'll get tonight. I've first became aware of uh, the need of spiritual warfare when my wife and I were in New Guinea. We had a lot of uh, demonic activity there and so on. There's an area of New Guinea called the Sepik uh, where uh, they have these spirit houses. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church in the center of uh, Port Moresby, which is the capital, is a replica of a Sepik spirit house. You know, Catholicism is great. Outside of America, you know, they, they marry into anything and everything they can, you know. But... Uh, uh, that's, that's where I first became aware that, uh, you know, there's a, a need to have authority and to know the authority that you have in Christ to be able to stand against the, the powers of darkness. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, very, very quickly, is the uh, first parable that Jesus taught. <clears throat> and it's the uh, parable of the sower. And the, uh, the sower himself is who? Who's the sower? Okay, we are, to, yeah, but uh, who's the sower in this parable? Okay, Jesus. And uh, what is the seed? Okay, word of God, anybody improve on that? 
Verse 19, give you a clue. My tests are easy. I give the answer. When anyone hears the word of a kingdom, this is the king seeking to establish his kingdom rule, precepts and principles that govern the kingdom of God. And so you've got the king wanting to establish his kingdom, and the, so the soil is what? The hearts of men. God wants to establish kingdom principles in your life and my life. But it's also a battle with the powers of darkness as well. I believe this is a spiritual warfare parable. Because as soon as that seed is sown, the Bible says Satan comes two years later. Oh, no, that's the am amplified, sorry. <laughs> Satan cometh what? Immediately to take away the seed. In other words, there are people that are hardened, they're uh, distracted with whatever, and the enemy is able to just come in, and the kingdom of God means absolutely nothing to them. The enemy just flies in and takes away the seed. But how many of you know the enemy is, uh, is uh, a man that has more tricks in his bag than just one? He, we, the Bible says we should not be ignorant concerning his devices, not just his device. And so the second way in which the enemy comes, he still accomplishes the same thing, is some seed falls into shallow ground, it springs up immediately, there's an emotional response, but then persecution arises. Jesus said the sun beats down on it, and the sun is unrelenting until finally that seed that has already germinated, got some sort of life, withers and it dies. And so the enemy accomplishes his goal, even though it takes a little longer. In other words, let's say somebody's in college, they get saved the last couple of weeks of, uh, of college, they've got a, a real desire for God and so on and so forth, and then they go back home and uh, their friends call them within 24 hours and say, hey, Tom, we're here, you're back in town again, how about coming down, you know, the guys want to see you again, we're going to meet down at the pub tonight and, and so on, and he, he makes a feeble attempt to say, well, listen, you know, uh, you know, I don't really go to the pub anymore, I, uh, you know, I accepted Christ last week, and oh, come on, Tom, yeah, you are you you know, come on, are you, are you serious? Are you making a joke, you know? And he says, no, 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 honestly, I, you know, I've, I'm trying to change my life, and I believe God, you know. Well, listen, you know, okay, but uh, we want to see you, you know. Next night, again, phone call, listen, we're going to hang out. I told the guys about you, and they, you know, some of them laugh, but listen, we still want to see you come down. You can always have a Coke. You don't have to have a beer, you know. You don't have to. And so, you know, he goes down there, and then all of a sudden, the, the ridicule begins, and over a period of time, the three or four weeks that he's at home for the summer, it's that unrelenting persecution. He doesn't have the root system and so on. It's been a sort of more of a, an emotional thing, and he withers and he dies. Again, the same enemy, he just changes his strategies. Three ways in which the enemy comes in the Bible. He comes as a roaring lion. If a roaring lion came in right now, most of us would hightail it to, you know, somewhere up there. Uh, we'd know we were in trouble. But he also comes, what, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And unless you've been around sheep and you're uh, familiar with uh, uh, sheep, you know, it may get right up to you before you realize you've got, uh, you know, a problem on your hands. But he also comes as an angel of light. And that's the most difficult one. I remember John Kilpatrick in uh, the Pensacola Revival, he would always share, of course, Steve Hill shared during the week, but uh, John Kilpatrick would always have the Sunday morning service. And he shared about how when he was a little boy, and I can't remember, I think in teenage years, I say a little, not five or six, but seemingly around 12 or 13. And he was home, I think home alone, and he heard some creaking in the hallway outside his bedroom. He said the door opened, and he said this most beautiful being he'd ever seen in his life came into his bedroom. And he said his first response was to get down and worship. He said he was convinced it was God himself. And he said, something said to me as a little boy, look at his hands. And he said, I remember looking at his hands and there was no nail print. And I remember when he shared that, and he shared it in great detail, but I mean, you know, chills went up and down my spine. That, you know, he can come as an angel of light. And so notice the third way in which the enemy comes. And this is the one that uh, I would say 90% of the church has been seduced by. It's uh, verse 22, and the one whom the seed was sown among the thorns... This is a man who hears the words and the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, notice it does not kill it. The first two, there is no further life. This is a seed that germinates, and it never produces fruit. In other words, the enemy does not care 
if you sit in church and you tithe as long as you're never fruitful. That is one of the greatest strategies of the enemy is to keep you from being fruitful. And what happens, the riches and the worries and cares and so on. You know, there are some churches, I don't go to too many of them, I didn't. But, uh, you know, where every time they take the offering, they rattle off a whole bunch of, you know, we're believing God for inheritances and this and that, and they've got a whole list of things and so on. Listen, the enemy can do that too. The enemy can do that too. Let's say that you work for IBM and, uh, you know, you uh, get a call into the office one day and the uh, boss says to you, listen, we're going to promote you. It's going to mean that you're going to get an extra $20,000 a year, but it means you're going to have to travel more than you've been tra traveling. You're going to be away about three days out of the week and so on. Uh, primarily, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, you'll be out of town. Some weeks you'll be out of town longer than that and so on. But, uh, you know, we want you to know that, uh, you know, we appreciate you here and so on and so forth. Thing is, Tom has a very successful home group on a Wednesday night. In fact, it, it's the home group that is growing faster than any other home group in the church because he's got a real heart of a shepherd and he's ministering to people. People are getting saved and so on, and the enemy wants to take him out. So what does he do? He gives him riches. Oh, he doesn't lure him with pornography or some other thing. Obviously, he could do that, but he uses the riches, and with riches comes worries. And, you know, in other words, we've got to be careful that we discern, is this God or is this the enemy? Is this a strategy of the enemy or is this uh, God himself? So anyway, spiritual warfare. Um, Matthew 12. Let me, let me take a moment to, to, uh, to share this. My older brother, in fact, I talked to him today. Uh, he is uh, a missionary, been doing missionary work in Argentina for the last 50 years, I guess, something like that. Been down there for about... Uh, longer than that, I guess, but anyway, Argentina and Paraguay. And uh, he initially, when he went down to Argentina, worked with a man by the name of Edward Miller. Edward Miller was the man that pioneered the very first Argentine revival. As you know, Argentina has been the, the one uh, country consistently over the last, what, 20 or 30 years that has had, you know, some major uh, moves of God and many of the uh, Argentinian uh, pastors uh, come to this uh, country and other countries and so on, talk about what's going on in Argentina. But Edward Miller was a Pentecostal preacher back in the 50s, and uh, he said Argentina was the, the darkest country in, South, in, all, in all of South America. My brother describes it, he said uh, Edward Miller would describe it like a door that's got 15 uh, layers of paint on it, and you want to bring it back, strip it back to its original, you know, wood. And you get through with the red paint and there's blue underneath, you get through the blue paint and there's green underneath, you get through the green, it's yellow. You know, and he said Argentina had layer upon layer of darkness. That's what it was like. Peron, of course, was the uh, uh, prime minister or the, uh, what's the word down there? Uh, anyway, the, uh, the head man. And Eva Peron that they made the film about, she was involved in witchcraft. It's a Ro Roman Catholic country. And... Uh, I know maybe some of you have been in uh, Catholic backgrounds and so on, but Catholicism, you know, literally opens the door to the satanic. You're praying to the dead, even though the dead may be Mary and, and you know, sent this and sent that. Nevertheless, it's the dead. If I said to you, to, you know, before I came tonight, I was praying to my dead grandmother, I'd be out of here, you know, right? You would know, listen, Ravenhill's into the occult. But if I say Mary, you know, everybody, that's fine, you know. And so you, you go to Catholic countries, and again, Catholicism in America is different. I grew up in Ireland, and, uh, you know, it's Mariology, and, you know, there's tremendous satanic uh, darkness. Anyway, Argentina was like that. And God spoke to the, this man, Edward Miller, and he said, there will never be a move of God in Argentina until the prince of Argentina is bound. He said, there is a principality over this nation that controls everything that goes on in this nation. And he said, if men can pray, or work rather, eight hours a day, you can pray eight hours a day. And uh, he set time aside, I believe it was six months, it's either four or six months, there's a book called Thy God Reigneth, gives you the Argentinian uh, revival, a little uh, booklet that was put out, I think it's still available. But uh, he set about praying and wrestling against this principality. Now, you know, many times we just say in the name of Jesus and think they'll take care of it. You know, wrestling is wrestling. I understand Jeremiah used to wrestle. I used to wrestle a little bit in high school. But, uh, you know, you don't go out into the middle of the mat and say, in the name of David, you know, and the guy goes, ah, you know, gosh, 
You know, it's your strength against his strength. You've got to wear down your opponent. You've got to have certain uh, strategies and so on and so forth until you finally, you know, it's not over in, uh, in, in 10 seconds. But I think spiritually we've developed that mentality that all I've got to do is say in the name of Jesus, this is a wrestling match. And especially when you're dealing with a principality. So after many, many, many months, and there were other people that were praying, they had a prayer meeting one night in which uh, Edward Miller said, if God tells you to do anything, do it. And uh, after two or three admonitions like that, some lady that was in the, uh, the group said, you know, I have this crazy feeling I'm supposed to just pound the table. And Edward Miller said, uh, but she said, you know, I feel like a fool. And uh, he said, well, we're going to march around the table. And he said, we're each going to pound it. And when it's your turn, just pound it. And cut a long story short, I may have it just mixed up a little bit, but anyway, when she hit that thing, just all heaven broke loose, and, uh, and uh, there was a supernatural visitation. They had a Bible school by the name of Peniel. Uh, God came, gave one of the young men who was able to speak. They uh, uh, silenced his voice so he was not able to talk. They gave him a pen and uh, paper or a pad, and he wrote down all the cities in Argentina and towns where um, the Spirit of God was going to move. My brother was down there just on the heels of that. But uh, then a man by the name of Tommy Hicks, an American evangelist, went down there. And uh, God told him to rent the Buenos Aires uh, Arena, which was a big soccer stadium holding thousands of people. People laughed at him and said, there's no way you could even get that. You know, it would cost you a fortune. Number two, it's governed by the, uh, by the uh, uh, control by the nation and uh, the government. And so he went to the Pink House, which is the equivalent of the White House. They call it the Pink House in Argentina. And uh, wanted to see Peron. Peron was not seeing anybody at the time. Had some sort of skin disease, if I remember. He was stopped at the gate. The man at the gate said to him, uh, what are you doing and who are you? He said, I'm American evangelist. I want to see the president. And, you know, there's no way you can get in and so on. The man had some sort of a problem. Can't remember again the details. But prayed for him. He was instantly healed. He said, if you come back tomorrow, I'll get you in to see the uh, uh, prime minister. Prayed for the prime minister. Prime minister was healed. It opened up the country. They literally said they took away cr uh, truckloads of crutches and so on. It was just a supernatural move of the Spirit of God in Argentina that was the beginning of that move. My brother got down there on the heels of that, and he said there were literally meetings after meeting out in these little towns and, uh, uh, where they would rent a hall. And he said after two or three songs, he said the tangible presence of God would come into that meeting and people would be on their faces for hours. And he said there would be literally pools of tears, pools of tears as God began to do that deep work of repentance. And he said by deep work of repentance, I'm not talking about major sins, obviously that was taken care of, but you know, God fine-tuning attitudinal sins towards your wife or husband or whatever it is, irritability, and, you know, God just uh, taking a searchlight and, um, and uh, dealing with sin. Argent, uh, uh, Edward Miller came to New Zealand while we were there, and I've uh, talked to him on a number of occasions and uh, been with him on several occasions. But uh, he, he gave an illustration one night I've never forgotten. He said the difference between a word of knowledge and the, uh, the, uh, and the manifest presence of God. He said, one night a lady came forward in a meeting, and he said, I went to her to pray for her, and God told me that uh, she was involved in witchcraft. And he said, I uh, confronted her and said, you, you've been involved in witchcraft of some sort, and she denied it. And he said, well, then somebody in the family is involved in witchcraft. He had that very strong impression, and she denied it again, and he sort of went, well, you know, your husband, or children, then uh, your parents have been involved in whatever, and she denied it totally. He just prayed for her and nothing happened. She went back to her seat. The next night, he said, the tangible presence of God came into the meeting. And he said, the woman came screaming to the altar, delivering herself. You know, just screaming, God, get rid God, deliver me from witchcraft or whatever it was, you know. But he used this illustration. This is the illustration I've never forgotten. He said, imagine going outside at nighttime and you pick up a serpent. Oh, sorry, you think you pick up a serpent, but uh, no. Let me back up. He said, instead of picking up a serpent, you, you think you pick up the hose to put some water in the, the car or water the grass or whatever. And he said, as long as you're holding what you think is the hose, you're quite content holding it. But he said, all of a sudden, somebody flips on the outside light, and you realize instead of picking up the hose, you've picked up a snake. And he said, the moment the light hits it, he said, you know, you just can't get, you know, rid of it fast enough. He said, that's what happens when the tangible presence of God comes into a meeting. People get rid of sin that quickly. You know, in your light, we see light, you know. Like uh, Peter, depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips or whatever. You know? 
And uh, anyway, that was the, the Argentine re, uh, revival. And uh, what was I going to say? There was something else, but anyway, I forgot it. Um, all right, Matthew chapter 12. Verse um, 24, and the Pharisees heard it. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how, and this is the verse I want to get at, verse 29, how can one enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? In other words, here is a territory that you're wanting to take and it says the first thing you have to do is bind the strong man. Jesus does not say, you know, it's a last resort First, bind the strong man, and then you will spoil his goods. And I believe there's, uh, you know, whether we are involved in child evangelism, mass evangelism, door-to-door evangelism, uh, you know, whatever evangelism you're involved in, whether you're praying for an unsaved uh, loved one, wife, or whoever it may be, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the gospel should be revealed doesn't matter what sort of evangelism you're in, you are in a spiritual warfare. The enemy is going to hold on to his own. He, he guards his own house. And we have to recognize that there is a demonic strategy that is going on, and we've got to bind that thing before we can go in and spoil his goods. And so uh, I want to uh, look at some uh, uh, a strong man over a group of individuals, a strong man Sorry, a strong man over an individual, strong man over a group of individuals, strong man over a city, and then a strong man over a nation. So uh, turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, you have the story of the uh, demoniac. This man that was... Uh, running around the graves, if you like, and they bound him with chains, and he broke them as though they were just, uh, you know, fetters that were made of grass. Verse 6, and seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran and he bowed down before him and cried out with a loud voice, and he said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, we are many. Notice the response there, my name, singular, is Legion, but we are many. A legion, I understand, is around five to 6,000 Roman troops were called a legion. And the head of that legion is this, uh, this man, my name, singular, is Legion, we are many. And it says, and he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In other words, he is a spokesperson. He is trying to bargain with the Lord on behalf of all his troops, if you like. And uh, Jesus obviously then uh, casts them out, and it says, they, you know, there were 2,000 head of swine and so on. But there you've got a strong man over an individual. And so it's possible to have more than one spirit, obviously, in, in control of a, a person's life and so on and so forth. But uh, Jesus did not waste time casting them out one by one. He dealt with this principle, bind the strong man. You know, if I was, uh, if I can go back to my alley illustration of uh, walking down the alley at night, and uh, here is, uh, you know, three or four guys that confront me, and one of them's, you know, six foot seven, he's twice as big as the rest of the group. Now, if I can take care of him with one blow, then chances are the rest of them are going to run. In other words, that's the principle. I take care of the strong man, and the others know they don't have a chance. And spiritually, you know, I believe that we're up against strong men. There are territorial spirits, if you like. The next one is Acts chapter 13, where you have a strong man over a group of individuals, at least influencing a group of individuals. And this is the story of uh, Barnabas and uh, Paul. And they are on the uh, island of Paphos. 
uh, verse 6, and when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, uh, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. A, a proconsul is basically a, a, a governmental you know, ruler, uh, maybe a mayor, maybe a, uh, somebody with even more authority than that. It's not very often that you have some dignitary, uh, some mayor or some uh, you know, senator or whatever call you and say, listen, would you drop by my office? I want to hear about the Word of God. That, that's what happened. These two men are called to this man's home because he is anxious to hear about the Word of God. When, he, when they get there, he has his buddy there, this Sergius or this uh, uh, Elymas, who was a magician. Now, notice what happens. It says, uh, verse 8, but Elymas, the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, so the spiritual opposition, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's what the enemy does. He doesn't want the, uh, the Word of God to uh, prevail. And so this man is seeking to uh, thwart uh, this whole process. But uh, Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him, and he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, now notice this next phrase, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. We've got to be careful when we read the Word of God. Sometimes there are little keys in there. In other words, will you not cease means that this has been going on and on. They're sitting there, maybe in this man's room, and he is asking questions. He is anxious to hear about the Word of God. But as Paul and Barnabas, these two brilliant men of God, I mean, they've got authority, they've got power, the godly people are finding a frustration here because every time they share something that is straight, in other words, clear and direct, this man is able to twist it and pervert it and change it. And it goes on and on and on. Finally, Paul, in frustration, obviously picks up on the fact when wrestling not against flesh and blood here, but against the principality, and he comes against this man. He says, "How? when are you going to stop? You know, when are you going to cease doing this? And so he says, uh, you're a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? So Paul was trying to make it straight. This man was perverting and twisting everything that Paul said. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, verse 11. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time, and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now notice the response, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had happened and being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Two things he was convinced of. The teaching of the Lord became clear, but also he saw the power of God demonstrated. So he was convinced by the power of God and the teaching. But this man, if he'd not been dealt with, again, would have kept on twisting everything. So there you've got a strong man that is influencing a group of individuals. Nancy and I, when we first got married, worked with uh, David Wilkerson in New York City, and uh, we were assigned to work with Mum Wilkerson, David's mother, who ran Catacomb Chapel in the heart of Greenwich Village. And three nights a week from 7 to midnight, we were uh, down there witnessing to people. They would come in, we'd give them coffee and donuts, uh, and uh, they'd sit at a table. You'd go up and try and engage them in conversation. And I remember one night talking to three or four people and every one of them seemed to be attentive. They were asking serious questions. I could tell it was a genuine, you know, rapport that was going on. And then somebody came in. By that time, the place was almost full, and they sat down at our table. And within a matter of moments, they kept interjecting with, well, what about this and what about that? And, you know, it was just plain old, you know, throwing a red herring, so to speak, into the conversation. And I was getting more and more frustrated. And this has never happened to me before like this. I was relatively young at this but I, I knew that this is more than flesh and blood. And under my breath, I said, Satan, I take control over you right now. I bind you. I didn't, words were not coming out of my mouth. But I looked at this man, and within about 30 seconds, he went, you know, I forget what I was going to say, and handed the conversation back over. Now, I think it was one of those things where, you know, God just allowed that. It doesn't always happen quite that dramatically. But, uh, you know, we've got to realize that uh, there is a spiritual battle that we're involved in. And so a strong man, again, can affect a group. The next one is a city. And, of course, Acts chapter 19 is the city, the city of Ephesus. As you know, Paul, on several occasions, refers to the city. He says that there is a wide and effective door of ministry, but there are, what, many adversaries. 
Another place, he says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. I believe that those wild beasts were demonic entities. We have no record of Paul being put in some sort of arena, you know, with uh, lions and tigers or whatever, like, the, you know, the Roman amphitheaters. But I believe that Paul fought with wild beasts. You know, those of you I don't advocate and have never read one of the uh, Harry Potter books, but when the very first book came out, the television ad, remember, was the schoolteacher uh, or the cat, wasn't it, that uh, was sitting, sitting on the desk and then jumped off and then turned into the teacher. And there's a word for that, lycanthropy. I got it from Michael Brown, one of his big words. But it, it means, you know, to, uh, for, uh, for a spirit to manifest itself in the form of a, of a beast. I remember Nicky Cruz when we were at Teen Challenge, his mother was involved in some sort of uh, occult uh, practice, and he said it was not uncommon for him to see animals run through the house that were cast out of people in Puerto Rico. You know, they would, trend, they would become, uh, take on forms of animal. David uh, Hogan, uh, if you've ever heard some of his stories, boy, he'll make the hair on your head. You won't sleep for days. He's got some of the scariest stories. But, uh, I mean, they were spirits that will manifest themselves in the form of animals. I believe that Paul was up against those sort of principalities and powers, and he said, I fought with wild beasts. That's why he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And as you know, Ephesus was the city that uh, they believed that uh, the goddess Diana, the multi-breasted goddess, uh, she came down of heaven, out of he uh, down out of heaven, and she established her throne in the city of Ephesus. And the whole world was influenced by that one city. In fact, let me just uh, pick it up here, uh, because uh, you have all the silversmiths that used to make their living by making little trinkets and uh, uh, shrines to Artemis or Diana. Uh, verse 27: Not only is the danger that this trade of ours fall into disre disrepute but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis or Diana be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worshipped should be dethroned from her magnificence. In other words, this was a goddess that at that particular time was the goddess. The whole world, that's what it says there, Asia and the world, the known world, worshipped this particular goddess and Ephesus was the one place where this uh, goddess uh, reigned. You have, uh, if you go back in that chapter, uh, verse 18, many of those who believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Many who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of all. They counted up the price and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. I uh, tried to calculate that at one stage. It comes into millions of dollars. This is before the printing press. 50,000 pieces of silver, a denarii was a common copper coin that was a day's wages. You got 50,000 pieces of silver in one meeting. That's how entrenched they were in the, uh, in the demonic realm, the city of Ephesus. And, uh, and no wonder then Paul, out of all the letters he wrote, he wrote to the Romans, the Galatians, and the Thessalonians, and so on. But it's only when he writes to the Ephesians that he deals with spiritual warfare, isn't it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In fact, uh, if you turn with me to uh, um, Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. When I uh, grew up in church... And somebody said, uh, turn in your Bible to Ephesians 6. Two verses immediately came to my mind as a little boy. One was, uh, children obey your parents. <laughs> and the other one was, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And for many, many years, I separated those two as though they were two distinct uh, teachings. In other words, Paul is in prison here, and he's only got a little bit of paper left. And he's sort of running out, and he says, oh, finally you know, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength. He sort of switches gears and he said, you know, I need to get this in before I close. Until one day I was, uh, I was asked to write a paper many years ago in New Zealand about uh, Ephesians 6. And I thought to myself, what more can you say about Ephesians 6 that hasn't already been said? Because there's literally, you know, books uh, galore written about it. But really it uh, begins in... Uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 22 of uh, chapter 5, where Paul deals with submission. 
wives submit to your husbands, husband love your wife, and so on. And then he uh, comes all the way down to children, obey your parents. Remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original. This is a letter. And then he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And then uh, masters, you know, uh, take care of the way you treat your slaves. Slaves, uh, you know, obey your masters and so on. And then he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. What is Paul doing? Paul is laying the, the most important lesson for spiritual warfare here, and it's submission. The Bible does not say, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Something comes before that. What does it say before that? Submit yourself to God. The reason the devil became the devil was he rebelled. And if there is a smidgen, if I can use that word, if there is a smidgen of rebellion in you towards the authority over you, whether it's a husband or wife, or, you know, brother, sister, or whatever, you're, uh, you know, pastor, elder, and so on, you've already aligned yourself with the very one you're trying to resist. You've already gone into cahoots, so to speak, with the devil. And therefore, you have rendered yourself powerless. And so Paul, and he does this in a couple of places, Galatians, he does the same thing, or Colossians 3, let me just uh, take you to that. Find the book of Colossians, okay. Yeah, Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, husbands love your Wives, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, slaves. Again, the whole thing that he does in uh, Ephesians 6. And then masters, grant your slaves justice right into chapter 4. Again, no chapter divisions. And then right away, verse 2, devote yourself to prayer. In other words, he always lays this foundation of submission before prayer. Because if we are in rebellion in any, any way against the authority of God in our life or over our life or whatever, we cannot be effective in prayer because much of prayer has to do with this contention, this spiritual warfare that we're involved in. And so it's absolutely vital when we, you know, we start praying that we take time to uh, make sure that there is a, an attitude of submission in, uh, in our heart. All right, I'm going to go on. Uh, next week we've got somebody else, or two weeks from now, and we'll get into uh, uh, the Old Testament a little bit because uh, uh, then we've, we've looked at a, a strong man over an individual, a strong man over a group of individuals, a strong man over a city, Ephesians, and then, of course, in uh, Daniel, you've got a strong man over a nation. Daniel was praying. You know the story, Daniel chapter 10. He's praying for uh, 21 days. At the end of those 21 days, an angel shows up, and the angel says, uh, from the very first day you prayed, God heard your prayer, and He sent me in response. So you've got to ask yourself the question, a big theological question, why does it take an angel three weeks to find its target? And the answer is that angels are males, and they don't like asking direction. <laughs> you ladies have always wondered, you've always wondered, why won't my husband pull over and ask directions, you know? No, that's not true. But the Bible says that uh, the prince of Persia withstood me. In other words, Daniel is in a territory that is governed by the prince of Persia. And the prince of Persia does not want the kingdom of God advanced in any way, shape, or form. And so for 21 days, he's contending with this angel. The angel finally sends up a, a response to God and says, listen, I need help. And God sends what? Sends Michael, a chief prince. So you've got prince against prince, prince against principality, and so on. But there you have uh, a geographical area. I was uh, born in England and uh, raised in Ireland. But in England, we, we call it the UK today, United Kingdom. It's made up of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. It's not as united as they'd like you to think. But anyway, we call it the UK. But Wales is still called the Principality of Wales. That's its rightful name, the Principality of Wales. And the prince of that principality is, see how good you're British, Prince Charles. Prince Charles, his rightful title, he's not yet king, and maybe never will be the way the queen's living, but uh, she, the eternal queen of, of, of England. But uh, Prince Charles, his rightful title is Prince Charles, Prince of Wales. And a principality is a geographical area 
where a prince controls it. And uh, years ago, a prince and a king were basically the same thing. But spiritually, there are principalities. There are geographical areas that a stronghold has been established through whatever, you know, has been going on. If it's been, you know, prostitution because of the gold rush and there's uh, an unclean spirit in that particular area, whatever it is, you know, all of those things. But we've got to be discerning. What am I up against? And uh, that's what happened in Argentina. Again, there was a principality that had to be bound. And when that, uh, that uh, principality was bound, it took months and months and months, but it eventually was bound. And today, you know, that's uh, one of the great uh, workshops. In, in fact, uh, uh, Cindy Jacobs and uh, Peter Wagner used to call Argentina their workshop. I, I had breakfast once with, uh, uh, you know, just mentioned his name. Uh, anyway, and I said to him, have you ever heard of Edward Miller? He said, no. And I said, you're using Argentina as a, as, a, as a workshop. I said, Edward Miller was the man that pioneered week after week, month after month, and bound the principality and uh, set that nation free. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying everybody's called to that, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit when we uh, get into the Old Testament, look at that next time uh, as we study the life of David and Goliath. There's a real, real... Uh, parallel there in that, uh, that whole story. But uh, anyway, leave that with you that, uh, listen, let's pray. We're up against uh, in our own lives, uh, you know, opposition from the enemy and then greater opposition when it comes to furthering the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you, uh, we believe, Lord, raising up men and women that know how to fight. Lord, as Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. That, Lord, it is a fight. It's a battle. We're soldiers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, you've given us weapons of the mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And Lord, you haven't left us defenseless. But Lord, we have an armor that will protect us. We have a name. We have a, uh, the word of God. We have a, the, the blood of the Lamb. Lord, all these weapons that we can use, Lord, in a, an effective way to, Lord, wage a good warfare, see the kingdom of God advanced. Father, put an excitement in our spirit, Lord. Give us a, a, Lord, a whole new grasp on what it means to pray. And Father, we ask that, Lord, this church would be known as a praying church, that, Lord, we would see again advancements uh, when it comes to the kingdom of God, that, Lord, no weapon formed against us, you said, would prosper. So be it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.